Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So they say that, like, never meet your heroes. Billy Joel's a hero of mine. I don't know if I want to meet him, but then I have, like, you know, I've been working in this space for a long time now. I have, like, healthcare geek heroes. And one of them is a guy you may know. His name is Andy Slavitt, and he used to run CMS, which is Medicare, for the entire country. He worked with Obama, a bit with Trump. But his story's way more interesting to me, not because of that healthcare geekery, because, you know, when the country shut down in March of 2020, he was just starting a podcast because his son Zach's like, Dad, you're a wonk. Maybe you should have wonkery in podcast land. But all of a sudden, he was picked up by Lemonada Media, and they turned his idea of a show called In the Bubble into this fascinating, entertaining, almost like a babblefish translator of wonkery to humanity. So this is the story of when the healthcare wonk guy becomes the podcast hero we never knew we needed. And the unwitting host to guests like Tina Fey and Al Franken and Matthew McConaughey, all trying to help bring some humor and some sanity to the country back in the days when we were sanitizing our Amazon boxes. In the Bubble became one of the top 10 podcasts in the country and appointment listening for everyone that was trying to just figure out what the hell we're going to do now. And it is definitively on my Mount Rushmore of podcasts you need to subscribe to. So please enjoy my conversation with Andy Slavitt. Let's get started. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, Matt or Matthew? You can call me whatever you like. Matt's perfectly fine. I've never interviewed somebody that became the accidental podcaster. And <laughs> I, to be honest, I've been digging to try to find the origins of how In the Bubble got started. We know when it got started. It's very popular. But from your mouth, I, I'm just genuinely curious to know, like, all right, the country went to shit. Someone's like, Andy needs a show. <laughs> how did that happen? You're not going to believe me. My, uh, at the time, 17-year-old son, Zach, who's a pretty quiet kid, but was home because of the pandemic, said, hey, Dad, you should do a podcast. And I have to realize the context. Any of you who have 17-year-old kids would know this. That the idea that your son or child would ask you to do anything at all is very unusual. So if he would have finished the sentence with, Dad, you should mulch the yard with me. You know, we, he and I would be in the mulch business today, and there would never would have been a podcast. But I was motivated to do something with him, and I said, yeah, I would. Well, would you do a podcast about Zach? And he said, well, I listen to you, and all day long you're talking to 
people in the government and people in science and like politicians and other important types of people. Why don't you just broadcast those conversations and just, you know, we'll, we'll let people go inside, you know, the bubble with you or whatever. So he became my co-host and literally from that, we launched the show to really to create kind of a, we called it 50% Fred Rogers, 50% Winston Churchill, 10% dad jokes to talk about the pandemic and what people were going through. So, I mean, so yeah, like just start a podcast seems like something that, you know, anyone can do these days. You had intention to do it. How did you learn the equipment? How did you research knowing where to get it put up? I mean, I know you work with Lemon on Media. Did they find you? Did you find them? Did it was just like, I'm doing this and oh, look, Andy's doing this. I'm going to give Lemon on Media some, some shout out here. I sent a note to a few different media platforms and said, hey, I want to do a podcast and I don't want to take the four months that it takes to put a podcast up. We've got a pandemic. I'd like to get one up like within a week. And I think within five minutes, the women who run Lemonada Media sent me back a note, basically said yes. Other places sent me a note, said, great, we'll have you talk to her this and her that and Something, a great discussion. What do you want to do it about? We'll write up a treatment, blah, blah, blah. And they said, yes, we'll figure it out. And, and within six days, I was doing my first interview with Mark Cuban, who I wanted to do with Mark because he's a friend of mine. But like um, he was sort of um, the avatar for the discovery that, oh, my God, things are really different now. When he Because he was on TV in a Mavericks game when he found out that all NBA games were canceled and he kind of put his head in his hands. So he was our first guest and we were off and running. So they took care of all of that equipment, marketing, guest advertising stuff. And, you know, I just had to, I had to learn how to interview people, which I didn't really know how to do. Well, that, that leads to my, like the accidental podcaster. You, you've been doing this work for a long time. You know your your backstory and your your career speak for itself. Uh, my listenership is well, you know we're all savvy nerds from healthcare and whatnot, so we we all know who you are. What you've done with CMS and Obama and all that. The art of radio. I mean, we all grew up remember radio. Like we're all radio guys, right? It's yeah, very sure. different, right? There's no video. You're, you're just hearing somebody, and everyone's scared shitless in their apartments. And you know the voice of our wonkery became the voice of the public. Were you expecting the numbers to be what they were? People were tuning in every, it was, a, it was appointment listening during the pandemic. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. Remember, there was a huge information void, right? There was a huge information void and people weren't saying a lot. Nobody was sort of telling people what to do. The government wasn't looking particularly on it um, at the time. And they were people who were talking about science, but they were talking about it in a way that was scaring the crap out of people. Like just, to, you know, we were learning for the first time about how a virus invades the human body. And, you know, for scientists, we're like, well, this is just how it works. But for those of us who had never put time on it, every, everything we learned was awful. What do you mean if you don't have symptoms, you can go into shock? What do you mean you go to, you get ventilated and you don't come out of it? What do you, you know, those was, everything we heard was horrible. So you mean if I touch my groceries, I'm going to be on a ventilator? And, the truth is, like, there's a 
scientific element to the to it, the hard science. Element. There's also a social scientific element to all this, like our psychology and what's happening to our education. And maybe you started a small business ten years ago that was your life's dream, and now it's going to close. And there's just all kinds of stuff happening, and that's why I said, you know, fifty percent Fred Rogers, fifty percent Winston Churchill, ten percent dad jokes, because I think people needed like some understanding and some sympathy and some sense of 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 love right? because they were not able to see the people they love and they needed some source of strength and they needed to know that the world was going to continue to go on i mean i would bring out people who were like doing shows on cable and 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 network television who were doing the news who were telling me they were scared and that they couldn't read the news without quaking and i'm like don't do that don't do that people people need some normalcy people need to see you reading the news in a way that tells them, oh, my God, we still have other stuff going on in this world. Like, you can't take that away from people. And I didn't really completely recognize, I'll be honest with you, Matt, like, that people became became listening to the show because it was a, sort of a comfort to them. And I kind of sensed maybe, you know, the reason I had my 18-year-old on the show is because you know, some, some like monotone 18 year old boy, like talking to his dad, sounding incredibly bored, like made, gave people a sense of normalcy. And I wanted people to like listen with their kids who had questions and feel okay about it. And so I had, you know, comedians and other people on. And uh, so it was, I would, the people get, probably got the sense that I was going through it with them, not. Any different than that? I would contend that to be factual. I, I was heard. Um, I remember hearing it referred to as the uh, the pandemic fireside chat. And wow. if, if I may adjust your personality calculus for a second, I think it's forty percent Winston Churchill, and here's a compliment: ten percent Al Franken. Wow. You have this wonderful dry comedic wit about you that emerges at exactly the right moments. And I, I have 13-year-olds, and not quite as meh yet as Zach was for the first couple of episodes. Right. But again, it was so resonant that this is you and your family stuck in a house <laughs> trying to make right. do. And you became, the, the again, the unwitting arbiter, un, the unwitting babblefish of wonkery to humanity. The, the comedy became a, a source of, of, it became an issue. And it, became, it reared its ugly head when we had Tina Fey on. And when I listened to that episode, instead of appreciating Tina Fey's humor, I spent the entire episode trying to prove to her that I was funny. <laughs> and she would make a joke, and I would try to play along and add on to the joke. And of course, she's a good sport, and she continued to add on to the joke, which she only encouraged me to think, oh, my God, I must be funny. And I realized, oh, my God, I have this, if I were a Shakespearean character, the death of me would be this desperate urge for people to say that I was funny. And so I, like, I had Camille Nanjiani on, and I had all these, you know, comedians on, and I found myself trying to be as funny as they were. And I had Franken on, who's like, Andy, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah, I remember you're, that episode. You're not seeing <laughs> me. She's, she's, she's a professional. But that, that's my whole point, is the show became more than science. It brought this level of like, um, you know, it's it's hard to be funny and uh, comic driven and humor based when things are really bad. But honestly, that's some of the stuff that gets us through it. And, yeah, you no, know, I, I, I totally felt that way. 
and it worked. It worked. I mean, it became like a celebrity entertainment show about really serious things. And the blend, I, I'd go out on the limb and even say the blend was almost brand new to what people are now coming to understand podcasts are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because when it became clear that we weren't going to be talking about the podcast forever, thank God, and we had to make a decision is where we're going to continue the show. And the producers and the, and the owners of Lemonada were very gung-ho that we should continue this show. And they said, you know, In the Bubble has lots of themes that can extend. And I said, I, that's for sure. I don't really know. I mean, I understand that people listen to us for a specific thing. But so I asked the audience permission. I said, what should I do? You want me to, to I appreciate you all listened. But if you stop listening, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> so I'll know soon enough. But, you know, what do you what do you want me to talk about? And is there something that that runs from this? And what I heard and what I've experienced is there's a lot of stuff that scares people, like climate change, for example, or school shootings or a war around the world in Ukraine or like runaway inflation. Like we could probably you and I could probably make a list that we, we, we could go for an hour. We would still be going. And it's that, that stuff scares us. We we feel a little bit helpless. Like, what are we going to do about climate change? Yeah, I'll do my part, but like the world's screwed up and getting worse and it's changing on us. And what you do is you 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 bring real experts on, who many of whom we haven't heard of before. You ask them really stupid questions because you're not, you know, you don't understand science. And I'm not saying I'm stupid. I'm not gonna you know there's a false modesty at you but i am gonna say that i'm stupid about science because i didn't pay attention in class because didn't understand it and so i thought well if i could understand it then i'll get people really good explaining things and we started going into these other topics to say do you want to come in the bubble and hear me talk to someone in the white house or someone in the state department or someone at the fed or some expert on the Supreme Court or, you know, any of these other things. And, you know, a little bit dubious because these are topics you can get a lot of different places. So I have, I have no particular qualifications. And I just, quite frankly, as you just pointed out, I didn't know the first thing about interviewing people. I knew a lot about being interviewed. I didn't know the first thing about interviewing people until recently. So now the show is very different. And, you know, I think we're, we're seeing whether or not that holds true and how long people want to continue to stick with it in a very different, very different world. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic was acute and we knew that at least, you know, two thirds of the country was going to pay attention to whatever they could. But yes, the CDC is not a good marketing company. They're not a good communications company. It's not the really job to do that. And yeah, I mean, yes, everything was politicized. It's a different podcast entirely, but where can people get trusted information that's understandable you did become i you, you i hope you understand you did become that beacon on the hill but it was the fact that i remember like conan o'brien's like first episode you know, he was so nervous you could tell and now he's like a season he learned literally on the job with like a week's notice you're taking this gig you know so that was there was such a 
uh, like a humility where you were so like self-referential, like what am I doing here? And the fact that you had your whole family there in the room at the same time, it was so, and look, I'm a fanboy, yes, but I'm, it was very relatable. And as a fellow person who's been doing interviews for, for 15 years on the air, it is an art and it has to be learned. And it's like a muscle that has to be trained. Oh, for sure. It's like, it's a real skill. And look, Matt, I appreciate what you're saying. It's very, very nice of you to say, very generous of you to say. And like, like anything else, I mean, it works or it doesn't work. And, you know, I'm sure you would reflect that not every one of your shows is equal in quality. Some you feel really proud of, um, some you wish you could bury. And some are in between. And uh, and some I'm have never very... been published. <laughs> right, right. And I found, like, that's going to be my fallback, is just to be like, um, this episode is was not very good. This episode was okay. This episode was good. And by the way, when I'm talking to people, if I find myself phoning it in, it's going to be a terrible episode. So just being honest and saying, Okay, I will admit I don't know what, what you're saying. Can, can you explain it again? I know you explained it before, but can you explain it again? Um, and you know, and then of course the team is important. Getting really good, really good guests is important, and then having having some understanding of how to get the most out of people. It's like what you did in this interview. You started out with me by saying some very nice things and letting me tell my story and getting me to open up and and. That actually puts people in a mood that if you then turn the tables later in the interview and said, okay, Slavin, how do you explain this stupid thing you did? You've lubricated that. That's a skill. That's a thing you learn. You may not be doing it explicitly, but you do it naturally. I didn't know that. So I didn't know that. I mean, about being an interviewer. In fact, if you watch cable news, what you learn about interviewing skills is you got to ask people really tough questions. Well, no. If you want people to open up, it's not about asking them tough questions. It's about building trust. Bingo. Bingo. And trust is something I want to get back to after the break. We'll be right back, folks. Andy, so let's put like a little wonky hat on for now and talk about like, you know, the jargon of the government and Medicare and reimbursements and the FDA and all. It's it's nonsense. It's something the average American will never need to know about. All they want is just to not have crap happen to them. So my, my first question is like, I'm hearing all over the place, Inflation Reduction Act, right? Look, I've done shows on this. I'm the idiot. I don't know what this means. I'm learning on the fly. But can you help me if you feel like this is an area where you can chime in? What does this mean? And is it really a federal protection? Is it going to ultimately help people go through less crap when they have to enter the healthcare system? Look, I mean, first of all, I'll say this as someone who spent several decades at least. Uh, and met a lot of mental energy focusing on how do we reduce the cost of prescription drugs for people. The fact is, when that legislation passed, the only thing that I could think about were the climate provisions, because they were so important. And honestly, we 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 will look back in ten years 
and 15 years, and we will know how far we've gotten. But if we've gotten further than we hoped, it will it will no doubt be due in part to some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, a huge momentum shifter, and and incredibly important. The prescription drug components were better than I thought they would be, uh, because these things, uh, as as you know, Matthew, are often negotiated and get watered down because you know in order to get votes, you know you need to get people who spend a lot of money to make their voice heard. In this case the pharmaceutical industry. But indeed, the ability for the government to negotiate prescription drugs has a 90% popularity within the country. The majority of libertarians thinks that the government should be able to negotiate the price of prescription drugs. People think it doesn't make sense not to. So now that they've passed the ability to do that, they've got to implement it. And the woman in charge of implementing it is a woman named Mina Seshamani, at CMS. She's a physician and an economist. She's brilliant. She's smart. She's a good listener. Um, she's the perfect person to do it. And they've taken some of the first steps. But yes, Amer- will Americans feel it? Americans who get insulin will start to feel it immediately. Americans who want an out-of-pocket, who spend more than $2,000 a year on drugs, will start feeling it pretty quickly. And the cost of prescription drugs, 10 at a time over each and 10 more each year over the next number of years are going to come down in price. And that's a good thing. That leads to another question about the FDA. I mean, the FDA is now like every American knows about the FDA because of COVID and because of the pandemic. We know all about this stuff. We become literate in the wrong sense of the word. But is it true that Medicare is trying to re-adjudicate FDA decisions? So the FDA and, and Medicare do two different things. Medi- FDA makes a decision one specific decision about a drug, is it safe and effective? That's it. Nothing about price, nothing about whether it should be covered, nothing about whether it should be paid for, nothing about how it should be paid for. CMS decides coverage and reimbursement. Should Medicare cover it? And how much should it be reimbursed for it? And by the way, it, because it's Medicare, you know you won't find pediatric drugs. Medicare doesn't care about pediatric drugs. They care about drugs for seniors. So it's Medicare has a very specific job to play, and it's about paying for things, how they get paid for, and how they get priced. The FDA doesn't concern themselves with that. They are asking a very different but related and important question, which is, does this drug work, and is it safe to take? This is where, like, you, you go to your pharmacy, and this, it goes from 20 to $50 for a copay. And that's something people can feel every day in their wallets. But that's not inflation-based, is it? The costs of co-pays just go up because of what? That is medical inflation. Um, now, your question is, are they go, are, do we have medical inflation because the underlying cost of those items behind them are going up? In other words, there's a cost for more to manufacture the pill or to deliver the pill or whatever. Some costs are going up. Labor costs are going up. We're paying people more. Uh, we're paying people tax more, pharmacists more, transportation costs are going up. So people are going to see those pass through in what they pay at the at the pharmacy. Some costs go up, though, not because there's underlying costs that are going up, but because the pharmaceutical companies or someone in the pharmacy chain, i.e. a pharmacy benefit manager, most people listening to your show know who they are, will have the ability, the leverage to raise the price of the drug because either they're still in patent and there's no competition, 
or the market's just generally allowing them to do that. Uh, and there's not, there's not the um, negotiating leverage that you get in other things outside of prescription drugs. So very tough thing to get your hand hands on, but people pay more when uh, effectively the system essentially allows people to expand and grow their own piece of the pie. So I let a lot of people know we were doing this show, and I actually got a question to ask you from one of them. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because it makes fun of the pharma ads, but it's that super-fast lawyer talk at the end of every commercial that says, if you can't afford your medicine, we can help. Can you break that down for us? Sure. I mean, so pharmaceutical companies some time ago needed an answer to the question of how can you charge $18,000 a month for this drug? And their first answer has always been, well, nobody pays the 18000 because insurance companies buy it in bulk. They pay much less than that. And then they make you pay much less than that at the, at the counter. So that, but that answer doesn't work in every occasion. It doesn't work when it comes to people who don't have insurance. And so they said, okay, well, we need an answer for that. And so the answer is, you know, we'll create a program where if you send us your income and tell us you can't afford the drug, we'll arrange for you to get the drug at a lower cost. Now, you might think, oh, well, gosh, that's so generous. That's very magnanimous at the pharmaceutical companies. But what they often do is they're selling the price at around the same price they're selling it for in many other countries, low and, typically low- and middle-income countries around the world. Um, and so it's their way of, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as, well, that's a nice thing to do for low-income people. You can also look at it as a way of saying they're going to get maximum amount of profit on every prescription they can, except the very few people who take the time to tell them and prove to them that they're poor. So the programs help people, but it certainly indicates we have a very bad system uh, if that's the way people have to get access to drugs. And it shows the rest of us how much we're overpaying. Right. And isn't it also true that like if you wind up getting this medication at a, at a reduced price through the manufacturer, it doesn't count toward your deductibles or something? Yeah. I mean, you're often doing that outside of your insurance plan. So so that's indeed true. I mean, look, the, the worst thing in the world, one of them, has to be getting told by a physician that you need to get your child a prescription and showing up at the pharmacist and then having the pharmacist say, great, we have your prescription ready. It's $1,500 and you only have a thousand dollars in your in savings. Now that happens every day. 30% of Americans say they don't fill prescriptions uh, because of cost. Close to 50% say it's happened to them at least once over the last year. I was at the pharmacy the other day when a young man asked for his prescription to be ready. And the pharmacist said, great news, not only do I have your prescription ready, but I have your other three prescriptions ready. He said, I don't want those other prescriptions. I don't have the money for those other prescriptions. And the pharmacist said, honey, those other prescriptions deal with all the horrible side effects that come from the first prescription we're giving you. You have to take them. And he said, I don't have the money. That, and I asked the pharmacist, because I was in line behind this young man, how often does it happen to you? And she said, every day, every hour. In this country? In this country. Yeah. 
So th- this kind of goes back to, uh, I, I, you know, we live and breathe in our jargony world of syllables that don't matter to the average person that's in line for their, with their pharmacist. This notion of health literacy. And it really comes down to how are you supposed to know about things you never expected to have to deal with? You were very vocal about Zach and all the shenanigans you had to go through with him. There are doctors that get cancer. There are nurses that get sick. No one is immune. Like, How did that feel for you to enter that system that you've been working with for such a long time? It is true as you say that when it happens to you, it feels different. And if you're baking policy uh, or thinking big thoughts and that happens to you, it often gives people a different perspective. And people are very colored by their own experiences. You know, I have had a lot of responsibility for a lot of people's health. I mean, one given time, 130 million Americans. And I used to read people's emails on a daily basis that they would write to me as the CMS administrator. And every day, and I would respond um, right away uh, so that people knew there was someone who was care- cared about their concerns. And I would hand them to somebody who would try to solve their problems. There are people with mentally and intellectually and physically disabled children who they can't get regular care for. There are people who have been bankrupt from a simple disease that took them by surprise. There are people that can't find specialists. Heck, I talked to someone the other day who runs an emergency room in California who said that they have a problem with kids on Medicaid who come in with broken bones and they can't find orthopedists so they don't get them set right until they're back in the emergency room and they're walking funny. Children with permanent limbs because they can't access. So these failures that we have are not theoretical. And lest anybody think, well, we've got an imperfect system, but we've got a lot of time to fix it. The reality is we've got a system that works okay for you if you have a salary and a good insurance company and an HR director and you speak English and you have plenty of time and you feel like you can have a, a, a peer-level conversation with a clinician, and you're ad- willing to advocate for yourself if you don't get what you want, then the system works fine. But if, you were, if you're a single parent without a lot of savings, who has to get paid by the hour in order to get paid, who doesn't have great insurance, who the system overlooks, who may or may not speak English as a first language, and you may or may not have access to specialists or the medicine you need, the system is not even serviceable at its most basic, basic level. It's as bad for you as it is for people in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Maybe as a loaded question, is it better than it used to be, or is it worse because of different circumstances, or is it unfair to conflate 20 years ago from today? It's much better than it used to be, largely because of Medicaid expansion and other initiatives But look, I mean, we have a problem in that we have people who fall through this safety net every day and who have to, I think most Americans would agree, should be able to get access to the care they need for the people in their family, in their lives, if someone gets sick. And they just can't. And when you can't, it's an existential crisis. But Medicaid expansion just transform the lives of millions and millions of people. It, people with Medicaid expansion, more people own homes, fewer people have payday loans, 
people are able to work more. Um, we've reduced maternal mortality. We've reduced we've reduced childhood mortality. We've reduced um, cancer. We've reduced um, cardiac death. All of those kinds of things, and that's just one program. If you went even further and said we're going to do things like create a permanent childhood tax credit, so that people get or or paid ma- paid family medical leave, people will be able to stay home when they're sick, care for their kids, have a little more money in their pocket for emergencies. So I'm actually greatly optimistic, not because we've solved these problems, but because we know what the solutions are. We have seen them work, and we know what the next solutions are, and they're in front of us. So all we need is the political will and the fight, the willingness to advocate for some of those policies. And I get that everything has a trade-off. I get we can't spend unlimited amounts of money in the budget. I, I understand that we have to make policy trade-offs. Believe me, I do. And I'm prepared to tell you what I think we would, if we wanted to have that wonky conversation, I'm prepared to tell you that we can afford all of these things. I, I would contend that most Americans don't know they have the power to be advocates. But even if they did, they need to be told where to, where to be pointed. And there, there is no one shortest path from I'm pissed to a policy. What advocacy means to me and to many of my listeners and my community is we need to guide the right angry people to the right awesome policies because that's the only way. I mean, Obama used to what is it? don't boo, vote. Let me give you a happy note. There have been three truisms in Washington, D.C., which is you can never win a battle against the gun manufacturers. You can never win a battle against pharmaceutical companies. You can never win a battle against oil and gas, right? Those are people who spend lots of money and they render our votes and our democracy rather meaningless because they're able to block anything that hurts them. Well, in 2022, there were victories, small victories, uh, but victories against gun violence reform, fought tooth and nail by the NRA for prescription drug savings, fought tooth and nail by the pharma industry, and for climate green energy in the in the IRA that was fought tooth and nail by the oil and gas industry. Now, you could look at each one of those things that passed and said, boy, they could have been better if there wasn't any influence. And that's true. That's true. I would grant that. But these were watershed moments, watershed moments to prove, that prove with real evidence that if people show up, that you can scare a congressman much more than you can scare a congressman um, than if you threaten to move your lobbying money. The only thing they care more about money are the actual voters and votes, and you have to tell them what matters. And today, you can go online, you can go on a Facebook group, you can go anywhere you want, and no matter what the issue you care about is, if it's campaign finance reform, if it's reproductive rights, if it's gun violence, no matter what that issue is, you can find your people really easily. And those people are undoubtedly raising money, making a stink, putting up a fight, raising their voice. And so it's easier to get involved today than it ever has been. And just the same way you do anything else these days, you just get right online, you find your people, and you show the numbers uh, that are there. It's a great, good, happy note. So wrapping, it's it's hard to pick your favorite kid, but do you have any one or two particular episodes of In the Bubble that have specific resonance for you? The episode of Matthew McConaughey with Matthew McConaughey that we did talking about gun violence in Uvalde, uh, where he's from, turned into an episode with him talking about his relationship with his dad and his kids. 
and me talking about my relationship with my dad, who I lost a long time ago, and my kids. And it was one of those conversations with a guy that, frankly, people don't take super seriously because he's a Hollywood guy. And they think he can't possibly be smart or have ideas because he's a Hollywood guy. And I'm going to know that that's just not true. And I decided in this interview that I was going to treat him with respect the same way I would treat anybody else, which is not often how he's treated. And it was a really kind of amazing conversation. So it's the one's not for everybody. There's plenty of other conversations I'd point you to, plenty of other episodes I could point you to on more serious topics. But that one had a particular personal resonance with me. Well, Andy Slavitt, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I could avatar you in like 90 ways because <laughs> you're kind of a little bit of everything unicorn. I do want to thank Lemonada Media for picking you up, for answering that call, and for snapping into action in 30 seconds and getting you all set up. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt from Lemonada Media is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. Subscribe today. You won't regret it. I guarantee it. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an off-script health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. <laughs>